Chapter thirty four of St. George and St. Michael, Volume two, by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Hope K. Chapter thirty four An Evil Time. And now was an evil time for Dorothy. She retired to a chamber more than disheartened by Lord Worcester's behaviour to her. Vaxed with herself for doing what she would have been more vaxed with herself for having left undone, feeling wronged, lonely, and disgraced, conscious of honesty, yet ashamed to show herself, and all for the sake of a presumptuous boy, whose opinions were a disgust to her, and his actions a horror. Yet not only did she not repent of what she had done, but, fact as strange as natural, began, with mingled pleasure and annoyance, to feel her heart drawn towards the fanatic as the only one left in the world capable of doing her justice, that was, of understanding her. She thus unknowingly made a step towards the discovery that it is infinitely better to think wrong and to act right upon that wrong thinking than it is to think right and not to do as that thinking requires of us. In the former case, the man's house, if not built upon the rock, at least has the rock beneath it. In the latter, it is founded on nothing but sand. The former man may be a Saul of Tarsus, the latter a Judas Iscariot. He who acts right will soon think right. He who acts wrong will soon think wrong. Any two persons acting faithfully upon opposite convictions are divided but by a bowing wall. Any two, in belief most harmonious, who do not act upon it, are divided by infinite gulfs of the blackness of darkness, across which neither ever beholds the real self of the other. Dorothy ought to have gone at once to Lady Margaret and told her all, but she naturally and rightly shrank from what might seem an appeal to the daughter against the judgment of her father. Neither could she dare hope that, if she did, her judgment would not be against her also, her feelings were now in danger of being turned back upon herself, and growing bitter, for a lasting sense of injury is, of the human moods, one of the least favourable to sweetness and growth. There was no one to whom she could turn. Had good Dr. Bailey been at home, but he was away on some important mission from his lordship to the king, and indeed she could scarcely have looked for refuge from such misery as hers, in the judgment of the rather priggish old bachelor ecclesiastic. Gladly would she have forsaken the castle, and returned to all the dangers and fears of her lonely home. But that would be to yield to a lie, to flee from the devil instead of facing him, and with her own hand to fix the imputed smirch upon her forehead, exposing herself besides to the suspicion of having fled to join her lover, and cast in her lot with his amongst the traitors. Besides, she had been left by Lord Herbert in charge of his fire-engine and the water of the castle, which trust she could not abandon. Whatever might be yet to come of it, she must stay and encounter it, and would in the meantime set herself to discover, if she might, the secret pathway by which dog and man came and went at their pleasure. This she owed her friends, even at the risk, in case of success, of confirming the Marquise's worst suspicions. She was not altogether wrong in her unconscious judgment of Lady Margaret. 
Her nature was such as, its nobility tinctured with romance, rendered her perfectly capable of understanding either of the two halves of Dorothy's behaviour, but was not sufficient to the reception and understanding of the two parts together. That is, she could have understood the heroic capture of her former lover, or she could have understood her going to visit him in his trouble, and even, what Dorothy was incapable of, his release. But she was not yet equal to understanding how she should set herself so against a man, even to his wounding and capture, whom she loved so much as, immediately thereupon, to dare the loss of her good name by going to his chamber, so placing herself in the power of a man she had injured, as well as running a great risk of discovery on the part of her friends. Hence she was quite prepared to accept the solution of her strange conduct, which by and by, it was hard to say how, came to be offered and received all over the castle, that Dorothy first admitted, then captured, and finally released the handsome young roundhead. Her first impressions of the affair Lady Margaret received from Lord Charles, who was certainly prejudiced against Dorothy, and no doubt jealous of the relation of the fine young rebel to a loyal maiden of Raglan, while the suspicion, almost a belief, that she knew and would not reveal the flaw in his castle, the idea of which had begun to haunt him like some spot on his own body of which pain made him unnaturally conscious, annoyed him more and more. To do him justice, I must not omit to mention that he never made a communication on the matter to any but his sister-in-law, who would, however, have certainly had a more kindly as well as exculpatory feeling towards Dorothy, had she first heard the truth from her own lips. For some little time, not perceiving the difficulties in her way, and perhaps from unlikeness, not understanding the disinclination of such a girl to self-defence, Lady Margaret continued to expect a visit from her, with the excuse, at least, if not confession and apology upon her lips, and was hurt by her silence as much as offended by her behaviour. She was yet more annoyed, when they first met, that, notwithstanding her evident suffering, she wore such an air of reticence, and thence she both regarded and addressed her coldly, so that Dorothy was confirmed in her disinclination to confide in her. Besides, as she said to herself, she had nothing to tell but what she had already told. Everything depended on the interpretation accorded to the facts, and the right interpretation was just the one thing she had found herself unable to convey. If her friends did not, she could not justify herself. She tried hard to behave as she ought, for, conscious how much appearances were against her, she felt it would be unjust to allow her affection towards her mistress to be in the least shaken by her treatment of her, and was, if possible, more submissive and eager in her service than before. But in this she was every now and then rudely checked by the fear that Lady Margaret would take it as the endeavour of guilt to win favour, and, do what she would, instead of getting closer to her, she felt every time they met that the hedge of separation which had sprung up between them had in the interval grown thicker. By degrees the mistress had assumed towards the poor girl that impervious manner of self-contained dignity, which, according to her who wears it, is the carriage either of a wing-bound angel, the gait of a stork, or the hobble of a crab. 
Of a different kind was the change which now began to take place towards her on the part of another member of the household. While she had been intent upon Richard as he stood before the Marquis, not Amanda only, but another as well had been intent upon her. Poor creature as Scudamore yet was, he possessed, besides no small generosity of nature, a good deal of surface sympathy, and a ready interest in the shows of humanity. Hence, as he stood regarding now the face of the prisoner, and now that of Dorothy, whom he knew for old friends, he could not help noticing that every phase of the prisoner, so to speak, might be read on Dorothy. He was too shallow to attribute this to anything more than the interest she must feel in the results of the exploit she had performed. The mere suggestion of what had afforded such wide ground for speculation on the part of Amanda was to Scudamore rendered impossible by the meeting of two things. The fact that the only time he had seen them together, Richard was very plainly out of favour, and now the all-important share Dorothy had had in his capture. But the longer he looked, the more he found himself attracted by the rich changefulness of expression on a countenance usually very still. He surmised little of the conflict of emotions that sent it to the surface, had to construct no theory to calm the restlessness of intellectual curiosity, discovered no secret feeding of the flame from behind, yet the flame itself drew him as the candle draws the moth. Emotion in the face of a woman was enough to attract Scudamore. The prettier the face, the stronger the attraction, but the source or character of the emotion mattered nothing to him. He asked no questions any more than the moth, but circled the flame. In a word, Dorothy had now all at once become to him interesting. As soon as she found a safe opportunity... Amanda told him of Dorothy's being found in the turret chamber, a fact she pretended to have heard in confidence from Mistress Watson, concealing her own part in it. But as Amanda spoke, Dorothy became to Roland twice as interesting as ever Amanda had been. There was a real romance about the girl, he thought. And then she looked so quiet! He never thought of defending her or playing the true part of a cousin. Amanda might think of her as she pleased. Roland was content. Had he cared ever so much more for her judgment than he did, it would have been all the same. How far Dorothy had been right or wrong in visiting Hayward, he did not even conjecture, not to say consider. It was enough that she who had been to him like the blank in the centre of the African map was now a region of marvels and possibilities, vague but not the less interesting, or the less worthy of beholding the interest she had awakened. As to her loving the round-haired fellow, that would not stand long in the way. In this period, then, of gloom and wretchedness, Dorothy became aware of a certain increase of attention on the part of her cousin. This she attributed to kindness generated of pity, but to accept it, and so confess that she needed it, would have been to place herself too much on a level with one whom she did not respect while at the same time it would confirm him in whatever probably mistaken grounds he had for offering it. She therefore met his advances kindly but coldly, a treatment under which his feelings toward her began to ripen into something a little deeper and more genuine. During the next ten days or so, Dorothy could not help feeling that she was regarded by almost every one in the castle as in disgrace, and that deservedly. 
The most unpleasant proof she had of this was the behaviour of the female servants, some of them assuming airs of injured innocence, others of offensive familiarity in her presence, while only one, a kitchen-maid she seldom saw, Tom Fools' bride in the marriage jest, showed her the same respect as formerly. This girl came to her one night in her room, and with tears in her eyes besought permission to carry her meals thither, that she might be spared eating with the rude ladies, as in her indignation she called them. But Dorothy saw that to forsake Mistress Watson's table would be to fly the field, and therefore, hateful as it was to meet the looks of those around it, she did so with unveiled lids and an enforced dignity which made itself felt. But the effort was as exhausting as painful, and the reflex of shame, felt as shame in spite of innocence, was eating into her heart. In vain she said to herself that she was guiltless. In vain she folded herself around in the cloak of a former composure, the consciousness that, to say the least of it, she was regarded as a young woman of questionable refinement, weighed down her very eyelids as she crossed the court. But she was not left utterly forsaken. She had still one refuge, the workshop, where Caspar Kaltoff wrought like an artificial god, for the worthy German altered his manner to her not a whit, but continued to behave with the mingled kindness of a father and devotion of a servant. His respect and trustful sympathy showed, without words said, that he, if no other, believed nothing to her disadvantage, but was as much her humble friend as ever, and to the hitherto self-reliant damsel, the blessedness of human sympathy, embodied in the looks and tones of the hard-handed mechanic, brought such healing and such schooling together, that for a long time she never said her prayers by her bedside, without thanking God for Caspar Kaltoff. Ere long her worn look, thin cheek and weary eye, began to work on the heart of Lady Margaret, and she relented in spirit towards the favourite of her husband, whose anticipated disappointment in her had sharpened the arrows of her resentment. But to the watery dawn of favour which followed, the poor girl could not throw wide her windows, knowing it arose from no change in Lady Margaret's judgment concerning her. She could not as a culprit accept what had been as a culprit withdrawn from her. The conviction burned in her heart like cold fire, that, but for compassion upon the desolate state of an orphan, she would have been at once dismissed from the castle. Sometimes she ventured to think that if Lord Herbert had been at home, all this would not have happened. But now what could she expect, other than that on his return he would regard her and treat her in the same way as his wife and father and brother? End of chapter 34 Recording by Hope K.